Have you ever been old before? Has anyone you know? It's part of the cycle of life, and it happens to most of us. If you're over 65, getting there, or concerned about someone who is, this podcast is for you. Hosts Dr. Marilyn Lakin, Marie Sola, and Sarah Stacy, a multi-generational team of women, will help you redefine what it means to get older. We'll be bringing you the latest information and speaking with today's experts and pioneers. Best of all, we bring it to you from a place of understanding. Our goal is to create a library of knowledge and experience to help you or your loved ones navigate this phase of life to the fullest. We can't turn back the clock, but we can make sure we live our lives informed and on our own terms. Well, Karen Sanders, thank you so, so much for joining us today for this episode of the Never Been Old Before podcast. And you are a holistic RN patient advocate. And we have so many important things to talk about today. Um, I just can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to let our listeners hear uh, about this important, important information. So thank you. Thank you, Marie. I'm excited to be here today. Yeah, we have a lot to dig into. And uh, God, I just want to say, I want to start this podcast by saying that I am very glad that there are people like you out there in the world and that you're training others as well. So thank you. Thank you, Marie. And with that being said, can you tell everybody why you decided to become an RN patient advocate? So I wanted to go into private practice as an RN patient advocate, probably for the last 10 to 15 years. And I was working full time in administration and management of a, an acute care hospital. And I was overwhelmed with how was I going to pay for my health insurance? And how was I going to afford to go into private practice? So these were two of the conundrums that were facing me. And as part of every nurse's Nurse Practice Act, the word advocate appears over and over again that we must advocate for our patients and families in any healthcare setting. So finally, I I took a job as teaching a nursing school, and I started building my patient advocacy business then and went into full-time advocacy as a business for for the last seven years. Wow. So I'm glad that you took the advocacy portion of your job so seriously. And, and you're right, it is, it's a nightmare right now to na- try to navigate the healthcare system, which I've unfortunately uh, been learning firsthand myself, but that's another podcast. And um Can you tell the listeners, what is it that an RN patient advocate actually does? So people have an idea of this incredible service that you offer. So we provide consistent follow-up on an ongoing communication to support your well-being by connecting with your healthcare providers or anyone along the healthcare continuum. We attend physician office visits and interpret progress notes and relevant information. We make hospital visits 
We do phone visits with hospital staff. We do patient care conferences over the phone with hospital staff. We develop questions for patients attending physician office visits or specialist visits. We interpret tests and diagnostic results. We look at prescriptions and engage pharmacists to help patients understand what medications there are on, what drug interactions they are experiencing, or has the physician or group of physicians overprescribed, and can we get the pharmacist to tell us which one of these medications could possibly be deleted, and then the pharmacist turns around and talks to the physician about things that can be changed. We review medical records. We educate and help our patients and clients anywhere along that healthcare continuum. We educate patients on their disease processes and their symptoms. We also provide um, information on patients using mayoclinic.org, which is a fabulous resource put out by Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and it's wonderfully well-developed, well-scripted, easy application for patients and families to use to find out information on diseases, on medications, on signs and symptoms, and on lab work. We also help people find pricing for hospital procedures, uh, looking for price quotes on websites. That's now a nationally or federally mandated law. We also Uh, help people with end-of-life decisions like uh, reviewing something called a MOST form or a do-not-resuscitate form, a MOST form for North Carolina's medical orders for standards of treatment. In other states, it might be another form, but people are asking for more clarification on how they can have a good death. And lastly, if there are complaints or big issues about healthcare that they have received from any provider or any hospital, we can direct them to the Department of Health and Human Services for their state to complain about anything that they thought was horrific, terrible, or demeaning or off-putting for their healthcare. So it's a lot of different services we offer. Yeah. And, you know, for anybody that has had a health crisis or been diagnosed with something or has a loved one um, in those circumstances. And even if you haven't yet, unfortunately, the odds are that probably will happen. It's crazy to try to navigate all this. And and as a lay person that might not understand the language, might not understand how to work the system in terms of getting the best care possible, it's huge to have somebody on your side that's advocating for you. I mean, you can try to be your own advocate and you should do that as well, but you can't do it all because you just don't know. Like you just don't have that knowledge unless you've been in the healthcare system. Exactly. So, yeah. And I also just want to uh, note that we will put a link to the Mayo Clinic website that you just mentioned. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. So if anybody is wondering where to find that, you can find it in the show notes or on the website, on the Never Been Old Before website. And so there is one thing, you are a holistic um, patient advocate. So I just want to bring up how you differentiate yourself a little bit from others with that, because that one word means a lot. So can you just speak a little bit to that? 
Thank you, Maria. I'm happy to. So a holistic registered nurse is someone who looks at the patient from a holistic perspective, and that includes mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, psychological, sociological, financial, and environmental perspective. We are not just a disease process. We are a human being with multiple realms influencing our being every day. And so it's important when I work with patients, I have them complete a holistic assessment that looks at all of those realms to make sure that I am understanding that their wife of 50 years might have died uh, six months ago, for example. Or they might have Parkinson's and they're falling. Or perhaps they have an issue with not drinking enough fluids and they are really dehydrated. So on many realms, those factors can have an impact, especially Financially, if the patients cannot afford all the medications that a physician orders, they may choose to pay their house payment, pay bills, and pay for food, and leave off paying medications, for example. So a holistic nurse is a credentialed, registered nurse with their board of nursing who looks at the patient from a holistic perspective, including all those realms. So important. It's individualized and customized. It's not just this cookie cutter approach. Is that what I'm hearing? Exactly. Every person is different. Every person is different. Beautiful. That's beautiful. And I just want to touch upon this uh, a little bit because I know that you mentioned previously, you know, it's hard to navigate our healthcare system right now. It's really kind of in disarray. But are there specific things within the landscape of the medical system right now that are driving people to be in need of RN patient advocates, like a little more specifically, or things that people should be watching out for that you feel comfortable advising on? Sure. So I like to call it the landscape of the U.S. healthcare system. And there's several critical issues that impact each person as they try to to get into this system. So an overarching theme of our healthcare system is that the emphasis is on addressing the illness with medications or procedures, not prevention. And it's really not about healing, it's about addressing illnesses. Providers, physicians are also trying to stay in touch with all of the most recent medical literature, which is impossible because there's a metric that there are 6,000 healthcare articles published every day. So there is no way that any one human can stay on top of that. And oh, why we're talking about expense, let's talk about the expense of medications that are needed to treat all kinds of different disease entities. And then in hospitals, we know that physicians' pay are tied to the revenues that they perform. And then when we meet with physicians, we're lucky if we can meet with them in 15 minutes 
to describe how we're doing. Do we have any issues with our home life? Are we emotionally disconnected? Are we having pain? What's problems with our medications? Do we really know what all of our diagnoses are? How's our living conditions? Are we financially strapped? There's no way to tell our physician in one 15-minute appointment all about that. Then it's a whole issue about health literacy. So people coming into healthcare don't understand we have a whole language, tons of acronyms, many abbreviations that make no sense. We are in the midst of one of the worst RN nursing shortages in my career. And we have, it's projected we're going to lose another 100,000 nurses in the next year. Due to COVID, overwork, poor nurse-patient ratios, then we're in the midst of a CNA shortage. So we know RNs and CNAs are needed in urgent cares, minute clinics, ERs, physicians' offices, hospitals, assisted living, skills facilities, home health, and palliative care and inpatient hospice facilities. And we don't have enough nurses for all those. We also know that medical errors are one of the key issues that are going on. There's not enough staff. There's not enough attention to detail. So lots of people are making errors, not intentionally, but just by the issue of too much workload and not enough staff oftentimes. And we also know that 80% of all medical errors occur at handoff. So handoff could be when you are transferred out of the hospital to home, or you're transferred out of the hospital to assisted living, or you're transferred out of the hospital to a home health agency. That's called a transition of care. And when there's transitions of care, that means you have to relate all of the patient's illnesses, disease processes, understand all their medications, and what are key issues that need to be communicated to the next set of hands, and a lot of errors occur there. And we know that nurses make serious mistakes because they're very stressed out, and that occurs. And then we just know that on many fronts that our healthcare system is silos where one silo just can't easily talk to another, and therefore patients wanting to get their medical records have to fill out a whole different authorization for release of healthcare information, not only for the hospital, but for the physician's office and the skill facility and the assisted living and the specialist, they're all different forms. Yeah, it's it's disheartening. Yes, it it's is. It's disheartening. Um, it's a sad state of affairs and it's scary. It's really scary when you're trapped in the middle of that. Um, so with all of that, you know, on the table, plus just the, the normal uh, confusion of somebody trying to maneuver their way through an illness or a health crisis. What are some of the most frequently asked questions that you get from people, Karen? So the most frequently asked questions are patients who are already in a hospital and no one is responding to their calls or their call lights. So that is um, a horrific issue because hospitals are understaffed. There's nursing shortages, there's CNA shortages. Uh, The second reason people call me is we know people are very concerned. They are in the hospital, and now they have had a chronic illness 
flare-up, for example, for diabetes, or maybe they've had an amputation, so their physician has written an order for them to go to a rehab facility at discharge. So a rehabilitation facility could be any skilled facility that chooses to offer rehabilitation services. Most likely, these are all rated by medicare.gov forward slash nursing home compare. So you can go to that website and find each skill facilities rating on the federal government website, which I've just discussed, and you can find their overall star rating on a one to five star rating. So underneath that one to five star rating, it could be five different other identifiers for categories of care. The one we all want to look at if we are sent to a skill facility is on the staffing. What is the staffing one to five star rating? If a patient is going to a facility, I never ever want anyone to go to one that has less than four stars on staffing. And if they have three stars or less, I ask for them to find someplace else. So it's a chronic chronic issue to find a skilled facility with adequate nursing care. People ask also when I'm in hospice care, will hospice pay for all of my care 24-7? And the answer is no, that when you are admitted to hospice, a hospice physician will come to the home, do a complete physical assessment, look at mobility, And they will write an order for an RN to come in and admit them to the service. And the RN will come in once or twice per week initially to do the assessment and to look at uh, medications. And they might have a CNA come in, a certified nursing assistant, for one to two hours for light housework. The rest of the time, the family is responsible for securing a coverage for home care outside of hospice care. Who do I call for complaining about the fact that I'm skilled in a skilled facility and I feel like they are neglecting me or not responding to me? So who do I call? And I advise the patient to call the assistant director of nursing of the facility or the director of nursing. And if that doesn't work, the federal government has something called the Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program. They are located in every state. They cover all counties. Sometimes one ombudsman might have one of many counties to be responsible for. The ombudsman will then interview the patient by making a site visit and getting a lot of information about why this client or patient feels like they're being neglected. And then that ombudsman will make sure all of that information is totally confidential and then will subsequently share that information with the director of nursing or assistant director of nursing. A patient can also call the state's local division of health service regulation for complaints and also complain that way. Yeah. And you know what? It really, it, it runs the gambit of everything. I mean, there's a myriad of 
different things that you have to think about and that you're helping people with. So I don't know if this, this is actually a repetitive question, but I'm curious as to what types of things do people, like they're asking you these questions and you're helping with them, but is, do they hire you for all of these things or do they typically hire you and then tell you what the different things are? Like how does, what is that like? So um, the way people find me is my website or by classes I teach or by word of mouth. And usually patients and families have one issue they want to get help about. And my business, this business of RN patient advocacy tends to be episodic and very acutely ill uh, regarding some symptom or issue they want resolved immediately. So for example, patients in the hospital would like to have a nurse come in and see them regularly during the shift to check on them. So that's how that works. So we first ask, what can I help you with? How can I help you? And they say, no one's answering my call light. So then I usually give one hour, the first hour at no charge, so I can help get them through that first set of questions. If they want to hire me after one hour, then I charge $100 per hour. Here in Asheville, North Carolina, our hourly rates are much less expensive than an advocate might be in the Northeast or in the Midwest or certainly in California. In California, those rates might be as high as $150, $175, or $200 an hour. Medicare or other insurances do not cover expenses of our inpatient advocates yet, but there are some promising things going on nationally to get those CPT codes, which are used to figure out how much an insurance agency would pay for a consult by an RN patient advocate. So that's the, the question is, what is each patient like? They're all different and they are using their prioritization skills to ask questions. It absolutely helps. And let me just say that the first question that you mentioned that you get is the people calling you from the hospital. Like, Hello, that freaked me out when I heard that. Like people are actually calling you from their hospital bed saying, hello, I'm here. Like, can you help me? Because I can't get help in here. And that, okay, so, so that that made my skin crawl a little bit. But I'm really glad that there are options like you uh, out there. And, and it sounds promising that perhaps insurance will start to think about picking some of this up, um, which they should. So if you work for an insurance company and you're listening to this podcast, get on it. <laughs> We're watching you. Um, so I think that we've talked about like who your clients are and the ultimate reasons that they hire you. But if you could speak a little bit more to sort of the process you go through with somebody, and I know each case is individual, but so somebody calls you and they say, Karen, I have questions about these things that I want help with. How does that then transpire between you and the patient or your client? So I'll just give you an example that happened yesterday. I have a patient who's elderly living in Western North Carolina in a remote rural area who is close to 75 years old, no family, no children, 
no nieces, no nephews, no anyone. And she wants to have a good death. So she called and asked me about a million questions about she does not want to be put on life support. She does not want to be intubated on a ventilator. She would just like somebody to give her medicine to help her cross to the next life. So the issue here is it became a long discussion and was and did exceed our one hour. So we decided we would meet together in a restaurant not far from here, and I would review key forms that we use in North Carolina, and I would also have her complete a RN patient advocacy agreement. It's not a contract. It's an agreement that I have with the patient that they sign and I sign, and it says that I'm here to help you. I am not a physician, and I am not a therapist, and if I see that there are issues, I will refer you to someone, and that if there's any issues that are really alarming, I will make the consult without your consent because your patient safety is my number one concern. In this case, this individual only wants to talk about those forms, and then we talked about the fact that she would like to end her life without anybody else contributing to that. So we know in the literature there's something called VSED, which is voluntarily stopping eating and drinking. And a lot of patients nowadays are taking that path where they stop eating and they stop drinking. It's pretty painless and it's very slow and very quiet. And some, depending on the health of the patient, can take up to two or three weeks. But in patients who are not very healthy, it, it, it gets expedited. But we also say that if you're going to do that, we think it's great that you get a physician to be knowledgeable of what you're doing and or to have a hospice physician available. So that, that's just an example of a client I'm going to be meeting in the next week. So really is it really is just a personalized individual, you know, each person is different and you look at what their their concerns and their questions are and you address address that and they work with you within the limits of their budget and having their questions answered uh, or their most important things done. And people I, I assume can probably come back sometimes, several times over the course of things. Right. Yes, I've worked with patients for as long as a year. If they've got progressive illness and they are dying and they are bed bound and they want help with arranging caregivers around the clock. And so we we work together to help make that happen. And so let's say that somebody is caring for uh, somebody that's ill and maybe the person they're caring for is incapacitated in some way. Maybe they have dementia or they're not able to actually have the wherewithal to say, I want to hire uh, an advocate. Can a caretaker hire an advocate to help them maneuver for their the person they're caring for? Yes, a family member can certainly contact me for any services. And um, that would be part of the intake. Does the family member have documentation from the patient? If they're verbal, then I get the patient to sign. If they're verbal and they're coherent and oriented, then I get them to sign. And then they give the patient's family member 
the authorization to talk to me and to advocate for them on their behalf. So they need essentially some sort of a medical power of attorney or something along those lines, but then they could hire uh, you or, or if they're not North Carolina, somebody that does what you do. Um, and so, I mean, you may have kind of answered this, but I just want to throw it out there anyway, because I know you talked about working with people who are in the hospital. And obviously, you work for people that are with people for things when they're living at home. But if somebody is in continuing care or assisted living or even a nursing home, do you work with people in those situations as well? Absolutely. So I had a client who was living in assisted living and she had progressive Parkinson's disease and she became more and more frail, falling more frequently. And so I worked with the nursing home director, the skill facility director, who also was the assisted living director in ACCRC, Continuing Care Retirement Community, that this patient is falling more. She needs her vital signs checked. She's getting a little bit more confused. And in that regard, this patient Uh, This facility was able to create a flexible system where they had nurses and CNAs come in and check the patient like six to seven to eight times a day. And then she actually, that went on for a while, but she became more disabled and her daughter actually came down and took her back to the state where the daughter was located. So that's just one example of how we might work in a skilled or assisted living. I would imagine, and I don't know the ins and outs, that if I were running uh, one of those facilities, I would love to have the extra set of hands that somebody hired. (laughs) Because I, you know, from past experience with my mom, I know, uh, and with other people, just as you mentioned, how short-staffed some of these places are, especially after COVID. Um, So here's something I want to ask you, because... You hear the word patient advocate bandied around a lot, okay? Like I, you know, you hear it from insurance companies, you hear it from the board of insurance at your state level, you know, if you're trying to get help um, there. I mean, you just hear that term a lot. So that can be really super confusing, I think, for the general public, Um so I wanted to to ask you, can you, first of all, speak to sort of, if you can, I mean, there's probably so many different people using that term, you probably can't cover all of this, but what are some of the differences? And then also, after that, what should people be looking for when they go to hire an art and patient advocate? So it's kind of a two-part question. Okay. So when I started my private practice seven years ago, the words patient advocate weren't really out there. RN patient advocate, that phrase started appearing in the literature 15 years ago from a person from a nurse in Phoenix, Arizona. So that's one of the reasons why I started my private practices. I felt like I had 40 years of nursing experience. I was educated. I have a baccalaureate and a master's degree and nursing, and I had 40 years of clinical experience working with patients and families in a variety of settings along the healthcare continuum. So now it's seven years later, and now we see that the term patient advocate or patient patient advocates is showing up in the literature. When you type in those two words, you get as many as 500 
and 35,000 annotations. And like you said, Marie, everyone's saying, I have, I'm a patient advocate in the insurance company. I'm a patient advocate at a hospital. I'm a patient advocate at a drug treatment program. Everybody's using the term. So what is an RM patient advocate first? And what is a patient advocate? So the thing I say to consumers, it's really important you vet these people and ask these questions. So for my students, I say, how long have you been an a patient advocate? Do you have any healthcare experience? If they have no healthcare experience, I would stop right there and thank them for my time. I also ask them, what healthcare education do you have? A baccalaureate in English or history is not education as a patient advocate. So we want patient advocates to have healthcare experience and training. So that could be a pharmacist, it could be a nurse, it could be a social worker, it could be anyone like that, for example, a physical therapist, an occupational therapist. Where did you go to school? Was it accredited school? And how many years of experience? So for the nurses I train to become RN patient advocates, I want someone to have had at least 10 years of nursing experience, and I want them to have graduated from a nursing school, and I want them to have a current license. So in nursing, we are required to be licensed by the State Board of Nursing in all of our states, all 50 states, and I would like to know, I'd like them to tell me their license number so I could look them up. Now, I'm a little bit more anal than most people, but I'm just saying. So I think that it's very important for people searching for patient advocates to be very careful and check out the credentials of your patient advocate that you have hired. There's also a a new certification called Board Certified Patient Advocates, BCPA. And there are some great people who have taken that exam. However, there are some people who have that assignation who may not have 10 years of clinical experience and who may not have baccalaureate degrees in healthcare. Recently, that board has changed their requirement for people taking that exam to have healthcare education. And I'm not sure about that, but I'm just saying the consumer needs to be careful. And I also ask for references for three patients that they've worked with. That That's great advice. And, you know, on that note, I actually have kind of two follow-up questions to that. So, you know, you're in North Carolina, could somebody from Maine hire you, or do you suggest that people hire uh, an RN patient advocate that's in the same state as they are? Is that important or not important, in your opinion? So I worked with the Board of Nursing here to teach nurses, disciplined nurses, an ethical, legal decision-making course when they made these horrible career-ending mistakes. So I'm really familiar with my Nurse Practice Act and what I can and can't do. And I call the Board of Nursing to say, can I 
take care of and work with a patient in Connecticut, for example. And what my consultant said, Karen, we in nursing have a different kind of licensure that can be used in different states, but I need to know if I have one of those kinds of licenses. And then I prefer not to work with people in other states except for maybe on a one or two hour consultation so we could talk about places you can go in your state to get the information. But what I like to do is to use three listservs nationally to help patients find patient advocates, RN patient advocates or patient advocates in other states. And those listservs are something called Advo Connection Directory. And if you type in Advo Connection Directory, that's hosted by the National Association of Healthcare Advocates, I believe. And it says right on their website, find an advocate. So you can type in your state or your zip code to find one. Number two, you can also go to the Aging Life Care Association, otherwise known as ALCA. So it would be aginglifecare.org. And you go to their website and you can type in your zip code and they'll bring up some. And then the third uh, listserv is called GNA Now, Greater National Advocates Now.org. And um, they have the same kind of thing. So between all three of these listservs, I can usually find someone very close to you. If I can't, then I go to my browser, my internet browser, and type in Wilmington, North Carolina, our inpatient advocate. So actually, I've had to do that also. So there are ways to find patient advocates in your state. And I actually get a lot of calls from people who call me finding me on my website. And I get I got a call from someone in Washington State last week, and she wanted to know if there was someone that could help her with end-of-life issues to find us if there's someone that can give her drugs to expedite her dying care. And I said, I'm not sure, but I'm going to give you these three names of agencies. And I don't, I think it's legal, but I'm not the right person to help you with this question. Does that make sense, Marie? It makes absolute sense. And I love that you, that there are places that people can go to find reputable RN patient advocates, and also that you gave a list of things for people to check on. And uh, again, we'll make sure that the links for everything that you're giving us uh, today are in the show notes and also on the Never Been Old Before website. So um, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm just going to ask you, do you get a lot of calls for services? I mean, you said you've been doing this now, what, seven, did you say seven years, six years or seven years? Yes. Yes. So what's, what's that like now? Are you getting a ton of calls? I still get a ton of calls. And um, so I've lived here in Asheville for 34 years. So I have hired and worked with hundreds and hundreds of nurses, worked with hundreds of physicians and other healthcare providers in multiple settings. Most of my referrals come from word of mouth, but a lot of referrals come from my website. And I would just say, it's don't give up on your own healthcare. You have to be persistent. And my favorite quote of all time for RN patient advocacy 
is what Winston Churchill said. And he said, and I quote, never, 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 never give in. And then I added, for your health care. <laughs> there you go. I, perfect, mm-hmm. right? And, mm-hmm. you know, in the interim or or when people aren't working with an RN patient advocate, maybe they've worked with one and now something else has come up or they're looking for somebody. Are there any tips that you have for people just that they should be doing in general to advocate for themselves, even when hiring somebody to help? I mean, there's certain things we probably need to do for ourselves or our loved ones. So what would you say to that? The first thing I always say to patients, my patients, I want to help you become an expert on yourself. So what does that mean? So if you have three diagnoses, you need to become an expert on what those diagnoses mean. So if you go to look at the 10 most frequent diagnoses for chronic illnesses in the United States, for example, one of them is diabetes and hypertension. Okay, I'm just going to make this simple. So I say, I want you to go or let's sit down together and let me show you how to use mayoclinic.org. And you get there and they have an alphabet. You can type in H for hypertension and it'll bring up all kinds of literature that's very patient focused and easy to understand. So you can't really advocate for yourself if you don't know what this disease has in store for you in terms of how it makes you feel, what does it do to your blood pressure, how are we controlling your blood pressure. Number two, you need to become an expert on the medications you're taking. So if you're taking 30 medications like we were talking before, I would say, I want you to call the pharmacist and get them to review your medication list. If you don't feel comfortable doing that, let's go to the pharmacy together and get a list. And we're going to ask the pharmacist to see if there's any duplicates or are there any drug interactions or side effects that you need to know about. And then the pharmacist will in turn call your physician to say, well, you might want to consider deleting this drug or adding this drug, etc. So become an expert on your diagnosis, become an expert on your medications, lastly become an expert on your lab work. Every diagnosis usually has a corresponding lab value. So for example, with diabetes, it's going to be your A1C or your glucose. So what is a normal A1C? It's under 5.6, and it's a look-back value that looks at the last three months of all of your blood sugar readings for the last three months. And it's an indication of how much insulin your body's producing and how well you are handling blood sugar. And so what does that mean? What is an A1C? Let's open up mayoclinic.org and look up what is an A1C and why do you need to understand that? What influence does your diet of eating all these carbs have on your A1C? And what influence does your exercise have on an A1C? So we can advocate for ourselves if we become experts on our diagnoses, experts on our medications, and experts on our lab values. And then when we have that expertise about ourselves, 
we can confidently go into a physician office and say, Dr. White, I am feeling nauseated every day about one to two hours after I take this diabetes medicine. What can you do for me? And he will say, well, of course you are, because that's a common side effect is nausea for this med. Let's try you on this drug. And that's an example about having that information can help you advocate. And of course, if you feel uncomfortable questioning your physician, you can always ask an advocate to help you. And if we can't be there in present, we can also do a phone conference. So I've had many phone conferences with my iPhone, with the patient and the physician during a visit. So there's lots of ways to help patients advocate. Fantastic. So, you know, like we say, knowledge is power. It 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 helps you to be able to live your life on your terms, especially as you become an older adult. So the more you know, the better off you'll be about all of this. Um, And so I know that you also are out there teaching uh, other nurses about becoming an RN patient advocate. So I do just want to throw that out there. um, And to let you know that we will have a link to your website in the show notes so people can find out more about that. And I know that you alluded to some of the the prerequisites that you have uh, for a nurse that would like to take your class. So they have to have, what did you say, 10 years of nursing experience? Uh, Yes. Yes. And be Definitely. and their license has to be up to date and all that. But all that, we'll make sure that there's links to that as well. So I just want people to know that that's also available because there could very well be some uh, nurses listening to this right now that are liking what they're hearing or have been considering it themselves. And we could use more of you, that's for sure. What is the most important thing that you really wish people knew uh, about their health care and the importance of having an RN advocate? My greatest wish is that people become experts on their own body health. How does their body work? What are their major diseases? What are their medications? And what are their lab values? And that would clear up a lot of confusion about why they might not be feeling well. Why aren't I getting better? Do I need another physician? Do I need a second opinion? So one of the things... I often say, if you're not getting the help from your primary care physician, there is no shame in asking for a second opinion. So I would always say, too, you always ask questions. If you don't ask questions, you don't get answers. A lot of people feel very intimidated when they go to see a physician and they feel like they are minimized or feeling like they can't possibly question what a physician has to say. Asking questions are very important. Yeah, that's great advice. And, you know, I'm at the age where most of those physicians are my son's age. So I'm like, listen, listen, <laughs> don't make me put you in the naughty chair. <laughs> it is intimidating, right? Because we particularly, you know, boomers and I don't know, maybe Gen X, but boomers for sure, we were brought up to think that like doctors were infallible and doctors were God and you don't question them. And you know what? Question them. 
<laughs> well, Karen, this has been so wonderful, so informative. Um, I thank you so, so much for agreeing to do this because I know that uh, you're, you've helped a lot of people who will be listening to this. And I know you're just helping people anyway with your work, but this was really kind of you to do. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marie. It's my great pleasure to speak with you today. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to stay up to date with our podcasts and content, visit our website at neverbeenoldbefore.com. Find us on Facebook at Never Been Old Before and give us a follow. We'd love to connect and hear your thoughts. Until the next episode, this is Marilyn, Marie and Sarah signing off.